Good evening. It is six o'clock on this Monday night, and here you are on KSKQ listening to Dream Infringement. Dream Infringement is a group of three friends. We like to tell stories and play songs based on a weekly theme. And for this week's theme, we are taking you to the movies. Yes, the movies, but more specifically how movies can kind of mess with our perception of the real world. So stick around for the next hour of Dream Infringement. To start things off, we have a song by Belle and Sebastian called Like Dylan in the Movies. Mm, Just kidding, we're not going to play that song as our intro song because as I was putting this together, I listened to Jennifer's pieces and she chose that song. And that's how you know we are true friends because we're picking the same songs on the same theme and we host a radio show together. These are all signs of true friendship. Uh, So instead, we're going to play a movie script ending by Death Cab for Cutie. I think movies really messed with my perception of ferrets because I always thought they sounded like this. Due to movie depictions. But no, they don't wander around making these little squeaky toy noises constantly. Ferrets really sound like this. Yeah, nothing. They're quiet. Unless they're really mad or having fun, if they're riled up in some way, they make this kind of cute chuffing noise. But that's not all the time. (laughs) I don't know if the people who make movies thought that it wasn't obvious enough. Like, here's ferrets on the screen. They're mischievous. They're doing stuff that maybe they felt they needed to embellish and have them make sound constantly but for whatever reason I'm setting the record straight I didn't know about ferrets until I met my stepfather he wasn't my stepfather then Bruce the man who would be stepfather and he had a ferret and I was very surprised about the reality of ferrets versus what ferrets seem like in the movies After much searching, I found this oddly catchy song about black-footed ferrets. So they're the non-domestic ferrets, the the ones that live out in the wild. They're endangered. They're probably really wily. Domesticated ferrets are kind of ditzy. They don't really have any sense of self-preservation. They sleep 21 (laughs) or more hours a day, and then they're like up and they're energetic and they're like little slinkies of chaos. They run around, run into things, fall off things, dig up things, hide things, and then fall back asleep again. Our ferrets always loved Honey Nut Cheerios like more than anything. That was the treat du jour. So not like depicted in movies at all. Anyhow, this song is The Black-Footed Ferrets by The Wiz Pops. 
I've always been a big fan of comedy. I love laughing. Laughing is important to me. If anyone knows me, they know that I love a good laugh. I can't think of any other ways that I could say that I enjoy laughing. That's something that you can know about me, that you must know about me. And I would have to say the origin of my love for laughing started with the movies that were made famous by a comedian by the name of Sir Robin Williams. Yes, I know you're thinking, is he, was he knighted? If he wasn't, he should be, posthumously. But that's another subject of conversation. What I'm talking about is one of the first movies that I came to enjoy starring Mr. Robin Williams. And that movie was Mrs. Doubtfire. If you're not familiar with Mrs. Doubtfire, that would very much surprise me. But for those of you who maybe it's been a really long time since you've even visited Robin Williams' filmography, I will educate you. It's a movie about a very lively, uh, eccentric father. He is a voice actor for cartoons and other things, and he is married to a very uptight Sally Fields, and they have three very 90s-looking children. They have two teenagers, a boy and a girl, and then a younger girl who is like, I can't imagine that she's pushing 10 years old. And Robin Williams, he is all about fun. He just wants to have fun. And he's always kind of like breaking the rules of a very strict rule-oriented Sally Field. And it's really a bad position that he keeps putting Sally Field in because she is, you know, the one who's... Uh, well, I'll just quote her in the movie. She says, why do you always make me out to be the villain? That's kind of like what he does unconsciously without without any kind of um, doing it on purpose. But anyways, he does something that, you know, the last straw that breaks the camel's back. And Sally Field, she utters the words that make Robin Williams the saddest man on earth. And those words are, I want a divorce. And in order for him to find his way back into his children's lives, because what happens is he's now like basically a bachelor and he his life is kind of a mess and he gets very few like um, few hours of visitation rights. I don't know. He ends up getting the short end of the stick in this whole like struggle for who gets the kids. Sally Field, she's like employed. She has like stability. And so what he ends up doing is he utilizes his ability to act, I guess, and be eccentric and do voices. And he dresses up as an old woman uh, from England. I think she might be Scottish. I'm not sure. Uh, but an old English woman, and he poses as the new nanny for his own children. 
and no one has any idea. Sally Fields has no idea. His three children, two of which are teenagers, one is pushing 10 years old, and the new man in Sally Fields' life, she doesn't wait around too long before dating, wait for it, Pierce Brosnan at his finest. He is smoother than smooth. And of course, he can't, Robin Williams can't stand up against Pierce Brosnan, but what he lacks in good looks and English, actual English accent, he makes up for in eccentricity and voice acting. And he just acts, acts to his heart out when it comes to his new persona, Mrs. Doubtfire. And I was so convinced as a six-year-old when this movie first was released in 1993 that I was convinced that this is an amazing feat of acting, that Robin Williams could deceive his family into thinking that he is a 70-year-old Englishwoman. It's amazing that this 40-year-old, you know, very hairy, hilarious Robin Williams could, could trick his family into thinking this. And so... I went my whole life thinking this is this is a, a thing that could happen to anybody. It could happen to me. But as an adult, I started revisiting this concept. And I realized after posing this question to many friends that it's it's not a possibility. I mean, think about it. If your father dressed as an English woman impersonated an Englishwoman, and even disguised their voice, even with as much stage acting training that Robin Williams has, if your father had all of that and then dressed as an Englishwoman, could he trick you into thinking that he was a totally different person and be your nanny? I don't think so. I know my father. He couldn't pull it off. And even if my father was Robin Williams, I knew he couldn't do it. I know Robin Williams too well. Sally Field got the wool pulled over her eyes. Okay? He, she raised three children with Robin Williams. She was around him. She slept in the same bed as him. She married him, for goodness sake. And still, she was tricked into thinking he was Mrs. Doubtfire. And at the end of the movie... When Robin Williams, in drag, gives Pierce Brosnan the Heimlich maneuver because he made, he tricked Pierce Brosnan into eating a spicy piece of shrimp that he was allergic to, and half of his face comes off, Robin Williams, suddenly everybody's like, oh my goodness, this was dad the whole time. It's just, it's not realistic. And as much as I applaud Robin Williams for going there, for doing what no no actor had the guts to do, dress as an old lady who was tricking his family into thinking that he was their nanny just to get close to them, even though he did this, I, I just have to question how realistic it is. So uh, with that thought, I'm going to play a song that wasn't made famous by Mrs. Doubtfire, but for the longest time I thought was produced for the movie, but was not, and in fact was was created less than a decade before the movie actually aired. Here is Aerosmith with Dude Looks Like a Lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. 
decided to take this question to Reddit. Under the movie subreddit, I said, I'm curious, what do you think are some ways that things depicted in movies mess with our expectations or perceptions of how life is or should be in reality? And these are some of the responses that I got. The two phrases I hate the most, you can be anything you want and you can change the world. And I said, ha, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. And someone else responded, yeah, the stars aren't as close to the moon as those people seem to think. Another person responded, apparently the mother in an average American family wakes up early and makes a huge breakfast to feed an army. The kids grab a slice of bacon while running out the door, and the father says, just coffee for me, thanks. Then we have... I would say war or just the military slash emergency services in general are quite overglamorized. Obviously, much of it is propaganda, so yeah. And I said, I hadn't thought of that in my scenarios because I've never done either of those things, but from the little I know, it does seem aggrandized. Another person said, every middle-class family lives in a mansion. The next person said, the idea that life is constant drama. In reality, most days, nothing interesting happens. Someone replied to them, unless you take public transportation. The next person said that there is any resolution to a problem which is neat and tidy. Then we have that you can do the most reprehensible things throughout the plot of the 90-minute movie, but as long as you're the main character, you can be forgiven by the end of that time span, usually with one act of redemption that is far outweighed by all the crap we witness the character doing. Another idea adjacent to the one above is that people are seen as good because of their inner essence or something intangible, despite doing a lot of bad things. It seems like a lot of people in real life have this main character syndrome, where they don't do anything to better their or others' lives, and may even be toxic, but they are entitled to everyone's sympathy, and sometimes even feel victimized because others don't gravitate towards them. The whole, I have potential, bull. I think this person's smarter than me. They just stuck adjacent in there like it was no big deal. You know, this is going to have a ripple effect. I'm going to have to start using the word adjacent for things now. Be prepared. The comment adjacent to this, uh, the next comment, that you can find parking right in front of any building you need to go into. You can easily slip on a lab coat or uniform of someone else and it will fit you and you can walk in unnoticed. When you turn on the TV, the news story related directly to your situation will be playing. You can walk slowly away from an explosion. The paramedics will allow you to have a conversation on the gurney and wait until you are finished speaking with your party before putting you in the ambulance. You can say, I lost my appetite and walk out of a restaurant without worrying about the bill. Then our last one says, how about falling in love in like three days? It worked in old Disney movies or cheesy rom-coms, but I think it's hard for the viewers to not notice in modern cinema. It doesn't happen nearly as often now, but it's not like older movies slash series aren't consumed. It's one thing if it's for simplicity's sake, and another when it leads to ideas of how love should be. 
It sounds dramatic, but I've met adults who move super fast and think that's how it should be, as long as the fleeting feelings are there, who idolize questionable rom-coms. The other thing is Hollywood's portrayal of poverty or money consciousness. I rarely see low-middle-income families on screen, all obviously upper class, but apparently supposed to be relatable to everyone. It's tiring after a while. And whenever families in poverty are shown, it's always laced in squalor, mental illness, and violence. It comes off as very exploitative, even if that's not the intention. So we got some really interesting and thoughtful responses to this question. My song choice is by Bell and Sebastian, and this is Dylan in the movies. Movies made me believe that at some point in my childhood, I would have an ability to communicate with animals. Um, Not that they would talk back to me, but that I would be able to talk to an animal and it would be able to understand me. And in some way, it would let me know that it understood me. And I blame movies like Airbud. This kid has a grumpy dad. The dad really scared me in that movie. Um, so the grumpy dad doesn't want the dog, but the kid insists on having the dog. And then that dog and that kid have a really special relationship centering on basketball where the dog is able to play on the team. He understands basketball. He understands the kid's uh, difficult relationship with the father. And he's there for that kid. I think he also helps him out with bullying. I, I've i never been a sports person. But this movie really inspired me to try to train my cat to have some kind of like sport sporty moves and I remember after watching this movie I got all these little toys out and I was like trying to get the cat to chase a certain string and then I moved on to just bouncing a kitty ball all around and (laughs) I'm pretty sure I even bounced it off of its my cat's face and if you know cats you know that my cat was not amused. Um, he put up with it for a while. And then I'm pretty sure he just laid down and then walked off at some point. And then I gave up. And it only, that training session probably only lasted about five minutes <laughs> before I realized that I wasn't going to get anywhere. And then I thought, well, maybe I just need a golden retriever, right? Maybe it just doesn't work with cats. And then there were movies like Fly Away Home, where the girl has a traumatic car accident, and then she goes to live with her estranged father, and he happens to raise geese, or some geese find her. Oh, the geese, the baby geese have also lost their mother, 
and they bond, they trauma bond with her. Of course, geese, if you catch them young enough, they'll just imprint on you, supposedly. I think that is a real thing that happens. But this movie made it seem like something that was possible, something that I could never attain in my normal, everyday, non-movie life. Um, There was Free Willy, where the kid had that connection with the whale. So many movies where kids had a connection with an animal, and that animal did everything it could to make that kid feel loved. And I had another experience uh, with a cat when I was like 11 years old. And there was this little kitten that showed up on our doorstep just as we were leaving the house to go to dinner. And I quickly brought out a little bit of cat food to it. And it was so cute. And I was petting it and I was telling it, stay here, stay here. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. Just stay here. Be here. Please be here when I get back. And the whole time my family and I were at dinner, that cat is all I could think about and you know what happened when I got home yeah the kitten wasn't there because (laughs) that's not how it works in the real world and I'm sorry if this sounds like a real cynical viewpoint on uh, movie connections with animals but that's that was my experience two failed attempts at trying to make a cat do something but you know, I went on to have other um, lovely pets, and I think that they get me about as much as they can, and I take good care of them, and, you know, it's it's as good as it's going to get, I think, in in my life. So I am, I am grateful for that. The song I chose is Animal by Mike Snow. I change shapes just to hide in this place, but I'm still, I'm still an animal. Nobody knows it but me when I slip, yeah, I slip, I'm still an animal. What's wrong with me? Everyone else has someone. Where's my Prince Charming? I'm going to be old, single, and alone and live with 30 cats. Why is it so hard to meet somebody? Other people do. Everyone else is in a relationship. I'm so jealous. Why can't it be me? What's wrong with me? If you're having bad thoughts about being single, you may want to ask yourself, did I just watch something perpetuating singleism, which is the stereotyping and stigmatizing of single people? And did that make me feel isolated and bad? Because these things affect us more than we might think. In one study, they asked 821 adults, both single and in relationships, about the romantic content they like to watch. When they averaged out the numbers, they saw no ties between watching romantic things and being afraid of being single. Then they separated the categories into men and women, single and not, and they found a statistical meaningful link for only one of those groups, the single women. The more romantic content a single woman had viewed, the more fearful they said they were about being single. 
Characters who are single, particularly if they are women, are often portrayed as anxious, unhappy, incomplete, and unfulfilled, and especially likely to think that being single means that there's something wrong with them. Psychological dynamics worked in just the opposite direction for the single man. The more romantic content they saw, the more unafraid of being single they tended to feel. So watching a romantic movie is maybe not the first date you want to go on because you'll leave that movie perhaps having two very different reactions to it. They can't say for sure that watching romantic content caused the single woman to fear being single or if the single women who were fearful about being single were more likely drawn to watching romantic shows. But regardless, the relentless messaging about the supposed wonders of romantic coupling made it much harder for people to live happily single because they were constantly reminded of what they were supposedly missing out on. And not all experts agree. I'm reading this solely because this uh, British fellow uh, is hilarious to me. <laughs> so this is Philip Hodson, a fellow at the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy who says that while romantic comedies can cause problems for couples once they exit the euphoric first few years of a relationship, they also provide a much needed source of hope and inspiration for the unattached. We need to live by stories that help us deal with tough realities. Idealism has a role to play. It can convince us that no matter how misshapen, decrepit, or dull we are, there's someone out there for us. And you know what? There is! Walk through any shopping mall, and you'll see the most extraordinary pairings, he says. We all need hope in our lives, and Hollywood trades on hope. I don't think I agree with Philip Hodson, because it's not like we're seeing the misshapen, decrepit, or dull on the screen. We're seeing the massively attractive, vibrant people with perfect lighting. It would be better, perhaps, if we hung out at the mall and looked at the extraordinary pairings, uh, that were out there. At least that would be more realistic. But the truth is, when you constantly fill your mind with one thing over and over, your brain starts to see it as normal. You're constructing your own narrative, reinforcing that these concepts are real. The consistent message throughout is that female characters who are single are unhappy and incomplete. And that's not a very encouraging message. It's not a helpful one. It's not one designed to make you feel great about yourself. So, you know, keep that in mind. If you can watch romantic content without that, like, taking over, that's awesome. But if you're more sensitive to those kind of feelings, like, I mean, we don't want you to feel like something's wrong with you because it's not, because they don't really show a lot of role models of how to be happily single and how to be like fulfilled with your with yourself and doing your own thing because I don't I guess that doesn't sell as well there's less drama <laughs> when it's just you and your 30 cats so keep that in mind maybe take a breather and of course the song I have to play is the Avid Brothers Love Like the Movies so you want to be in love like the movies but in the Okay, Bobby, are you ready for the final 
way in which movies messed with my perception of things. I've never been more ready in my life for anything. Great. Well, um, another uh, movie thing is that kids, 10-year-olds, 9, 10, 11-year-olds, they all... They all had a crew in movies. Yes, of course. They had the crew. They us- they had a treehouse. Of course, someone had a treehouse. Yes. None of my friends I none of my friends had treehouses. Um and they would all just pal around together with zero parental supervision. They would go to abandoned houses and investigate. They would go to the store across town and get into shenanigans what about that uh laboratory that is very mysterious that no one thinks twice about that's surrounded by barbed wire fences but there's a small opening that a 10 year old sized person could fit through well they would go and investigate that if they felt like it exactly and my childhood was never riddled with such mystery uh, which is probably a good thing because yeah. things in the real world don't. If something is that mysterious, it's it's better better left alone. Yes, and the shenanigans that though that friend group those kids got into, those you you dodged a bullet quite literally because the things that they all went through, whether it was like E.T., I mean even modern day Stranger Things, mm-hmm. you have like Stand by Me. I mean, these things are traumatic events that no doubt would make these children through their whole lives have to seek therapy for. Oh, yeah, for sure. But in the movies, they all go back and like, you know, eat their mac and cheese and watch their cartoons. Yeah. So those are some ways in which the movies really let me down. Yeah, because because when we became 10-year-olds, we couldn't do that. No. We n- neither had the curiosity, the motivation, or the money to do those things. Or, or the lack of moral compass, because a lot of these kids, like, stole their parents' car sometimes. That's true. They ran from, uh, you know, uh, legal officials, although these legal officials were always depicted as, like, middle-aged white men in suits with mustaches uh you know chasing after the kids yeah and they usually weren't very smart either yes but and they were they were as dumb as they were crooked so you know but but i would never at 10 years old if a man in a suit with a mustache was chasing me and i knew that they like were government official like i'm gonna stop and answer the questions that this man has to ask me and be detained because that's what i was raised to do totally (laughs) i i don't jump on my bike and uh fly it past the moon that's just not how i was raised can't happen yeah alien or not well i hope that we didn't give you the impression that we don't like movies we do we love movies we do we absolutely adore them Um, But yeah, sometimes they make you think things that are not true about the real world. And it is our job as Dream Infringement to answer questions 
but also question answers. Exactly. And I believe we did a good job tonight doing that very thing. I'd like to think so. Well, that brings us to the end of our show tonight. No, Emily, say it isn't so, please. Tis so, Bobby. And stick around for more KSKQ to come. Yes. And we're going to play you out with a song. And that song is... The Movies by the Stadler Brothers. We love you. Good evening. And we'll catch you on the airwaves next week. Bye. The movies are great medicine. Thank you, Thomas Edison, for giving us the best years of our lives. Citizen Kane came mutiny, mutiny on the bounty, the bounty hunters, the hunters.